This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about U.S. humanitarian assistance and other foreign assistance in the 20th and 21st centuries. This is, of course, a major contemporary and historical topic, and we are very fortunate to be joined today with a really uh, superb historian who has written uh, what is the book on the topic now. And so we get to talk about this topic with someone who has spent, I think, about a decade examining how the United States developed the foreign uh, intervention capabilities for humanitarian assistance, what they look like, why the United States does this, and what the legacies are for today. Um, our guest is uh, Professor Julia Irwin. Uh, Julia, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We are too. Uh, professor Julia Irwin is the T. Harry Williams Professor of History at Louisiana State University. She is, as I said, a leading scholar of humanitarian assistance and U.S. foreign policy, as well as other issues in international history. She's the author of two wonderful books that I highly recommend to all of our listeners. Her first book uh, is really The History of the Red Cross and its Role in Humanitarian Interventions. It's titled Making the World Safe, the American Red Cross and a Nation's Humanitarian Awakening. Her new book that we're going to focus on today has a wonderful title, Catastrophic Diplomacy, which, which Julia, I thought could be read in many different ways. Yes? <laughs> yes, I was uh, hoping for the double or at least uh, triple entendre. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How clever you are, Professor Irwin. <laughs> uh, the new book is titled Catastrophic Diplomacy, U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance in the American Century. I also wanted to mention that among the many other articles and activities that uh, Julia is a part of, She's also the co-editor of a journal, the Journal of Disaster Studies. Uh, and, and again, that, that's a, a formidable title, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's a, well, you know, hopefully, hopefully there's more about how to resolve disasters than there is about the disasters themselves. But yeah, we'll be right. publishing our first issue uh, in, in June this year. So. Fantastic. So I hope everyone will uh, look up Professor Irwin's work and particularly her new book, Catastrophic Diplomacy. Before we get into our discussion with Professor Irwin, of course, we have uh, Mr. Zachary's scene setting poem. What, what's the title of your poem today, Zachary? The Old Colossus. The old Colossus. It, it, it better not be about me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead, Zachary. <laughs> the world can shake, does often stand not still, moves mountains just because it can and wants that we should see its sneers and hear its taunts. Like raindrops beating on a windowsill, the world has hungers we can never fill. Is gaseous spews its steam from fiery fonts, remakes anew our mossy forest haunts, and never ceases maiming, waits to kill. Still when one shouts from ruined city blocks, still are there others shouting in the dust, still do the voices echo off the rocks, and help we shall, for listening we must, build up the streets and salvage sunken docks, still Lady Liberty does shine in rust. Wow, that, that last line, Zachary, really uh, hits a point that does Lady Liberty shine in rust. What, what do you mean by that line in particular? I think the, uh, the, the larger thesis of the poem is that 
um, an American commitment to sort of openness um, and, and liberty embodied by the new Colossus, which is obviously Emma Lazarus's poem uh, on the Statue of Liberty, um, that that spirit is part of what motivates our um, desire to help uh, countries suffering from natural disasters. Um, and the idea that even when um, uh, the, the, this idea of liberty or even when our country itself suffers from uh, the effects of time, of weather, of change, uh, of political stagnation, that we can find a way to help others who are in need and whom we are capable of helping. So you see an altruistic spirit. Yes, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Julia, your your book wonderfully complicates that. I, I read in your book just what Zachary's talking about, a certain benevolence, but many other things at work as well. Why does the United States get so involved in international disaster resistance, particularly in the early 20th century when you really start your story? Yeah, and well, let me just thank Zachary for that really poignant and beautiful poem to, to start us off. Um, you know, it's one of the things I've been studying humanitarianism for about 20 years now since I started graduate school. And it's one of the things that interests me most about it is um, it's, it's you know, the multiple motivations, I think, that go into any humanitarian relief operation. Uh, certainly um, for the U.S. actors I'm talking about, uh, many of them are motivated by, by altruism, by a desire to help suffering and reduce suffering. Um, but at the same time, that can can and does coexist um, with political calculations, uh, strategic motivations, um, economic motivations. Um, so the desire to sort of assist um, other countries uh, is for the interests of, of people who are suffering, but also in the United States' own national interests. And I think the sort of dual internationalist and nationalist sort of set of motivations um, is what makes humanitarian assistance so so fascinating to, to study. And and one of the elements that I think you bring out beautifully in your book that I really didn't appreciate was how in the early 20th century, particularly with the presidency of uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, and a series of disasters uh, around the United States and farther away uh, in Martinique, uh, in Japan and elsewhere, the United States develops new capabilities. Well, what did that mean for the United States in the early 20th century? Yeah, so as I write about in the book, the 19th century um, saw the United States not doing much uh, in terms of official foreign disaster assistance operations. There were a few, a few and far between. Um, but starting in the early 20th century, we start to really see this burst of responses to, to foreign catastrophes. Um, and I argue in the book that it's for a few different reasons. Um, first of all, the United States has, in the last couple of decades before that, really become a world power. Um, it wants to sort of burnish its image on the world stage in positive ways. So this is one of its motivations. Um, but it also has new capabilities. Um, the acquisition of U.S. territories in places like uh, Puerto Rico, the Canal Zone, the Philippines, um, means that you have U.S. troops stationed in these places, and they can and do respond to disasters in other countries. Uh, so the sort of geography has shifted. Uh, you have a lot more diplomats and consuls in the world who happen to be on the scene um, and are sort of able to both report and assist when disasters happen. Uh, they often work with American missionaries who have a large presence in the world as well and American business interests. So simply the sort of growth and the growing footprint of the United States on the world stage um, gives it both motivations and capabilities uh, to deliver relief in ways that it couldn't in the 19th century. Fantastic. Zachary? How unique is the United States in seeing disaster response as a core part 
of of the of, of its diplomatic work during this period? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and it's it's really you know this is becoming more and more I think uh, what we might call an international norm. So you see a lot of other countries, especially kind of powerful you know great powers, uh, doing similar things. Um, sometimes um, you know we, we um, there's there's an earthquake, for instance, in Messina in southern Italy in 1908, um, and you see the navies of several European powers as well as the United States coming to the scene to to respond. Um, there's um, sort of this growing uh, willingness of states to provide cross-border aid. Um, by the time you get to the 1920s, we actually have uh, some of the first international organizations, both um, non-governmental and governmental, that are devoted to coordinating international relief efforts. Um, they kind of have, you know, they're, they're hit and miss uh, in, in what they can do. Um, but we start to see by the 1920s and into the 30s, um, the, the evolution of an international humanitarian system uh, that is concerned with disaster relief as well. So the United States is sort of part of this, this broader tw- trend for sure. And and one of the other really interesting parts of your book is you not only show the United States as part of an international fabric, including the British Navy and other actors, but also how within the United States, there are what you call three pillars. Uh, what are the three pillars and what is the significance of that for understanding the nature of American responses? Yeah. So when I started writing this book, um, I think I kind of thought there would be two pillars. So I'll get into that. Uh, but the first is is really the the State Department and uh, its staff. So diplomats, consuls, um, people who work within Washington and the State Department who are planning the United States sort of foreign policy uh, agenda and 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 activities. Uh, the second is the American voluntary sector. Um, by this, I mean organizations like the American Red Cross, which I wrote about in my first book, um, which really is the kind of humanitarian auxiliary of the United States for much of the first half of the 20th century. Um, but also other NGOs, um, especially later on, um, groups like Church World Service, Catholic Relief Services, CARE, um, which not only sort of um, provide aid themselves, but partner with the United States government um, in really kind of powerful ways. Uh, so these two organizations, these two sort of pillars, uh, the, the State Department and its agents, the, the sort of voluntary sector that partners with the U.S. were part of it. Um, and then as I started researching the book more and more, I realized what a significant role the U.S. military would play. Uh, when I started this book, I sort of understood that the military today plays a major role in humanitarian operations. But I assumed this was a later 20th century development, sort of a post-Vietnam, post-Cold War effort to reinvent the military. Uh, but in fact, as early as the early 20th century, you start to see the U.S. Navy especially, but also the Army, Marines, depending on if they're on the scene, uh, responding to a lot of catastrophes. Uh, the War and Navy Department committing uh, rations, tents, other uh, supplies to help uh, disaster victims. Um, so these three together, um, the military, the State Department, and their partners in the voluntary sector uh, are really responsible for um, cooperating to carry out disaster relief operations. And and who's driving the bus? I mean, it seemed to me as I read through the book that at different moments, different parts of the pillars or a different pillar is stronger than than others. Uh, is that true? And how does that dynamic work? Yeah. You know, I think if I had to sort of, it's, it's the State Department that is in a lot of ways kind of controlling the decision. Um, the State Department is kind of making these decisions about whether to offer assistance to other countries, uh, whether um, it is needed, and honestly, and, and using their own sort of words, whether it is in the United States' national interests to respond. 
Um, they're certainly encouraged to do so and then are col uh, collaborating with the American Red Cross, uh, especially early on, which is playing a major role in collecting funds and, and kind of generating support. Uh, as time goes on, the government plays a heavier and heavier role, um, has a heavier hand in, in making these decisions. Uh, so especially as you get into the aftermath of World War II, for instance, you see a lot more of the kind of um, impetus coming from um, from government officials, um, and not simply from you know, from the American Red Cross, um, but the I, I would sort of say that is where you're seeing a lot of the uh, the, the decision to to respond uh, lies within within these groups. How do these countries that are uh, provided with American disaster response respond uh, to American help? Is it always welcomed during this period, or are there sometimes tensions? Yes. Uh, well, there are definitely tensions. And coming back to the title of catastrophic diplomacy, I think this is uh, one of the places we see this. You know, one of the things that, that I think is interesting about disaster relief um, and and I is most of these aid operations are uh, undertaken with the uh, invitation or, or sort of approval um, of the government of another country. So the United States sort of uh, extends an offer of assistance. And if that government would like to accept it, it does. Um, in general, especially in the early days, a lot of these uh, responses are really major disasters and, and kind of the, the governments and, and people in general are, are welcoming whatever aid they can get. I mean, this is these moments of really extreme upheaval. Um, but that doesn't mean that people are simply uh, immediately, you know, uh, grateful and desiring American aid. And especially as time goes by, um, in a lot of cases, tensions really start to mount. Um, a lot of the American relief workers I write about um, have act with the best of intentions, and some of them are quite sort of, you know, culturally sensitive and aware. Uh, others are not acting with the best of intentions. Uh, some of them are arrogant. Some of them are chauvinistic. Um, some of them express pretty significant racial and cultural prejudices to the very people they're supposed to be uh, assisting. Uh, so these can and, and really did breed, breed tensions at times. Uh, there are also a few examples in the book um, where the United States really didn't get permission to, to extend the aid that it, it wanted to. There was a famous case in Jamaica in 1907 uh, in which a U.S. Navy commander, sort of due to some miscommunications, uh, landed uh, several hundred armed U.S. sailors uh, in Jamaica, which was a British territory, uh, without having the proper consent. Uh, this led to this uh, diplomatic uproar. Um, later on in the 20th century, there were attempts or considerations even by the U.S. government to force aid into countries like China after the revolution, um, as well as Cuba after its revolution, um, attempting to show people living under communist governments that the United States cared about them through aid. So these very political motivations, um, these um, offers were refused by those governments, but you sort of see these, 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 um, the, the ability for, for diplomatic tensions to arise over the issue of aid and, and unwanted aid, especially. And, and that raises one of the key questions I had reading through this. You set up your narrative as if there are a lot of continuities, and you point to some of these continuities, particularly at the end of the book. Um, but there also does seem to be a break uh, after World War II, uh, particularly with the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations, the creation of USAID in 1961. Uh, but even before that, you show that the Eisenhower administration is really interested in uh, centralizing uh, this process of, of aid and, and also pursuing development goals. Uh, what's the shift that's occurring there? Yeah, so as I spoke about sort of at the beginning of our conversation, in the early 20th century, the United States really 
you know, kind of bursts onto the scene as, as a world power, um, expands its, its, um, its territories overseas as well. Um, in the aftermath of World War II, or sort of during and after World War II, we see this other sea change in, in American power as the United States goes from being a world power to a superpower. Um, it comes out of the war uh, with the nation, or the, the world's largest um, military. It has um, uh, access, or it has it has bases, or, or access to bases uh, in some two thousand different places. It means it has. Um, airplanes and ships stationed all over the world, as well as service personnel, uh, as well as diplomats and consuls, uh, and a lot of money. Um, with all of this, the United States begins to respond to far more disasters than it had during the early 20th century, uh, far more regularly on a routine basis. Um, it's at the same time that um, the kind of interest in international development is really coming, uh, becoming a central concern of, of policymakers. Um, Disaster relief uh, becomes tied in with with questions of international development in really interesting ways, um, not only in the 1960s under USAID, but under its predecessor organizations, uh, things like the Point Four program started by Truman, the International Cooperation Administration that started under Eisenhower. Uh, so you do have this this growing interest by um, by both uh, state and military officials uh, in the problems of, of both disasters and development, and how kind of um, government power can be harnessed uh, to respond to them. And, and to what extent, Julia, do you see that as? part of an, an altruistic, uh, benevolent goal of, of improving and helping these societies, helping suffering people, maybe even guilt at not having done as much earlier? And to what extent do you see this as an instrumental way of pursuing an anti-communist agenda? Yeah, and, and I, would, I would say that it is very much both at once. Um, again, you do have a lot of um, really well-meaning you know, aid workers who are really concerned with uh, the people they're assisting uh, who want to cooperate, collaborate, who want to kind of do things the right way um, and to, to really improve people's lives because they, they care about that as, as, a, as a value that they hold dear. Um, but they're working with a lot of people whose primary goal is to um, defeat, um, you know, defeat global communism, to, um, main, you know, to maintain U.S. stability and, and power in the world. Um, there's a lot of sort of private State Department memos and, and correspondence, which are now fortunately declassified for us historians, um, where they really talk very explicitly. Uh, about using aid to um, to counter you know communist propaganda or to to really show the United States good side, um, the State Department takes a lot of notes on how much aid the Soviet Union is giving to other countries and makes sure that the United States is giving more um, in as many cases as possible. Uh, so these these political calculations are going on at the same time, um, and and sometimes it leads to disagreements. Uh, there's fights sometimes you know internal infighting. Uh, between those people who really see aid as a as an international project and those who see it more as a in line with national interests, uh, so I think that those kind of contests and competitions over you know the meaning and and, and significance of aid are are important to the story too. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, how does the American public view foreign aid? It seems like during this this period that the question of foreign aid becomes much more of 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 a of a topic of public discussion with the creation. Um, of the Peace Corps, et cetera. Um, how, do the Amer how does the American public during this period think of American foreign aid assistance? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things about uh, sort of the sudden disasters that I'm really writing about in, in this book, um, earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, floods, 
a lot of times they're really perceived within American culture, I think kind of in, in popular culture more broadly, um, as these these events that are often considered acts of God there. They're not the fault of anyone there. There are sort of people who are um, blameless victims uh, for, for their own suffering. For those reasons, there tends to be less um, sort of um, less public opposition in a lot of cases to giving at least some immediate aid to to survivors of these types of disasters. Uh, then there are two other types of assistance. So it's an interesting kind of um, there there can often be more bipartisan support. Uh, that being said, it is certainly not universal. Uh, one of the um, fun sources for this book was actually reading letters that people would write to um, sometimes their Congress people, sometimes to the State Department, sometimes to the president himself, uh, expressing their opinions about whether um, the United States should or should not um, give aid to a certain country. And people are very kind of clear about, you know, um, you know, sometimes pushing for it, sometimes because it's the right thing to do, sometimes because it's a way to uh, show American compassion. Um, other times calling on their, their elected officials or their representatives to not give aid because there are problems at home. The, there are um, more important things to kind of focus on domestically, or maybe this country is an enemy of the United States and, and doesn't deserve, in their words, American aid. Uh, so some of these same debates that I think we see today, right, in the 21st century over questions of a foreign, either humanitarian or, or even military assistance, uh, really play out throughout the 20th century uh, in the wake of a lot of these catastrophes. So that leads me to ask a question I know you've thought a lot about, uh, about where your book ends in the 60s and 70s is a period, uh, and it's not unique to this period, but I think it becomes more common, that critics of the United States at home and abroad uh, contend that uh, foreign aid, humanitarian assistance, the Peace Corps, USAID, these are all arms of American imperialism. Um, business interests, strategic interests being promoted in in ways that are disguisingly <laughs> looking like they're about good good natured activities, but really designed to put American influence and dominance in place. Uh, what's your response to that? Yeah, um, uh, th and there are certainly. Um there is certainly some evidence of that too. For one of the, I think most um, most kind of clearest examples of this is the U.S. Food for Peace program, which was started in 1954 under Eisenhower. It actually had a few predecessors, but this is really the the major um, legislation establishing food. Um, what, what became known as Food for Peace uh, is in 1954. Um, that organization was designed to um, provide surplus commodities to other countries. Um, much of it. Um, sold, um, but on easy credit terms. Uh, some of it donated for disaster relief and other you know, famine relief, things like this. Um, that aid, though, was uh, not simply, you know, the, the food was not just, um, you know, kind of created out of thin air. It was, uh, uh, these surpluses had arisen um, in domestic attempts to solve uh, an American farm problem uh, by subsidizing American agriculture, you know, Long story, but it results in a lot of surpluses. Um, essentially, food aid becomes a way to help other nations while also helping American farmers um, and reducing these kind of what had become by this point embarrassing surpluses of food that were kind of going to waste. Um, so this is one way that I think we see both American and international interests being served at the same time. Um, there are a lot of companies that are involved and are promoting their products and getting government contracts to get their products out there. Um, 
Some pharmaceutical companies, for instance, are, are donating types of supplies, food companies as well. Uh, so there certainly are these links between uh, the kind of supply chain, the humanitarian supply chain uh, and the U.S. government um, that, that you know, make it. You know, th- there are material reasons, I think, for for some of these critiques. But but do you also think that uh, American assistance in, in in many cases has helped people? I mean, I, it's a very broad question. It's hard to pin it down. But but sometimes it seems to me, at least, Julia, that the discussions of American imperialism, although legitimate and helpful, can deny the reality of sometimes this assistance really providing crucial benefits to people on the ground. And one of the ways I like to sort of answer that question is is that it is also just as political not to give assistance. Um, The decision not to provide aid to a certain place or a certain group of people or after a certain group amount of time has passed um, is a political decision in its own right. Um, So I think this this kind of decision to give aid, to help, to assist, um, to make that part of the United States foreign affairs identity. Um, it's, it's, you might even call it its brand, right? There's, there's not necessarily something um, that is fully nefarious about this, right? And I think, again, coming back to one of the points I made earlier, that, that complex nature of this, that it can be at once altruistic and benevolent, as well as strategic and, and kind of calculating that these two things can coexist um, is, is, I think, really interesting. So yeah, no, I, I think that um, there is if we had a world, if you know, if we imagined a 20th century or 21st century without any American aid or or other humanitarian aid for that matter, um, international aid, other na- nations' aid, um, that world would look a lot different too. And maybe that's not really the world that we we want to live in. Right. right. Well, I think that brings us to the the question we always like to close on uh, when we have the opportunity to to talk to a historian uh, about the, the development of a process and a set of activities over time. We, we now come to the present. And of course, these debates, these issues are with us. Um, uh, the Ukraine war has a whole disaster quality to it. Um, we've seen recent uh, earthquakes in various parts of the world where the United States has been called upon and sometimes has responded with a great deal of uh, foreign assistance. Sometimes it hasn't. Uh, What are the lessons we take from your book? What would you say to someone who's interested in these issues today, as I know you are? What what, what should we be thinking about when the next disaster occurs? Yeah. You know, what I try to do in the book is is to highlight both, uh, well, one of my my grad school uh, advisors called it the warts and all approach to history. It's highlighting the good and the bad. And I, you know, Rather than sort of painting this this black or white picture, I think there are moments where some of the the aid workers, the diplomats in my book, acted with with um, you know with ethical integrity and and you know did you know worked and cooperated with the people they're talking to um, and managed to have a fairly effective and, and ethical response to a major crisis that really did help people. Uh, there are others who didn't. They acted for political reasons. Uh, they acted paternalistically. Um, so I think one of the lessons to, to hopefully take away is that you know thinking about this history and, and what went wrong, what went right, can can help us hopefully learn from those those times it went wrong and then make it well more right, uh, kind of in the future. And does that mean the United States should be doing more? That it should be targeting fewer places? I mean, one of one of the narrative elements is that over time the United States gets involved in more and more places, and you you imply you're not you're certainly not the first to imply that. Oftentimes, we're getting into places where we have very little understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think some of it um, comes back to um, you know if we want to kind of be 
effective, right? Aid should not simply be given for, for political calculations, but we should prioritize the humanitarian considerations first. You know, where are the places that actually have the, the real need, um, the, the people's need, basic needs for food, for shelter, for clothing, for um, um, and then promoting their dignity, right? Should, should be create um, prioritized um, as opposed to... Um, making the decisions primarily out of either national interests or kind of political interests. Uh, so if we can figure out a way to, to center, um, you know, humanitarian needs above all, I think that would be one of the best ways uh, to go about it. I'm not quite sure that we, we will see that anytime soon, um, but it would be nice if we could imagine a world that way. Yeah, well said. Very well said. Zachary, what do you think? I mean, is uh, is foreign assistance, is humanitarian aid, is it something that interests young people who think about international affairs uh, or, or, or are people of your generation too cynical about this? I think young people are very interested in disaster response, disaster aid, um, as I think they always have been. Uh, but obviously, it's going to become even more relevant with, with climate change and uh, the intense weather events uh, that uh, it will bring. Um, I also think it's a great way to understand this warts and all approach to history. I think uh, the topic of uh, international disaster response from the United States is obviously one of, 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 of a very mixed record. And it's important to be able to sit with those complexities. And I think studying this history offers young people practice doing that, but also a key example uh, of where American presence isn't inherently good, isn't inherently altruistic, but can make a difference and could make a difference. Right. And you think, sorry, gradually, sorry. You said very nicely put, Zachary. <laughs> and Zachary, you think that that, that idealism is still, still burning in the hearts of, of young people? I think so. I, I think so. That's that's great. That's great. So our final question, Julia, uh, you've you've written this book on uh, almost a century of U.S. Uh, responses to, to foreign disasters. I'm just curious if you think that um, this is something this is the this story is actually also relevant for thinking about domestic disasters. Yeah, uh, I mean that's a very good question, and and in writing this book, I, I did sort of have to have to draw some lines. There's there's a lot of differences um, between does domestic and international disaster response, um, both legal differences, bureaucratic differences, um, but I think a lot of the same sort of broader lessons can can still apply. Um, why do we? Why do people choose to give? Why does the government prioritize uh, certain states, certain disasters over others? Um, why do we often prioritize uh, disaster response? over prevention or mitigation or risk reduction activities, uh, which you know, could reduce suffering in the first place. Um, these sorts of questions that I think are come up a lot of uh, in the book, um, thinking about international questions, apply domestically as well and apply to a lot of, of disaster scenarios. So um, that would be, kind of, I think, one, one way to think about it. There's a lot of really great books out there on uh, U.S. Dom domestic disaster aid as well. So I have some wonderful colleagues working on some of these questions too. So. And and your answer just highlights why this is so central to our democracy. It's central to the way we think about our place in the world and our foreign policy, but also how we handle um, our own internal issues and our own internal challenges and, and echoing Zachary in a world of climate change where weather events seem to be more common, um, how we handle and help people who are who are suffering in different parts of our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and who we again include as as as, as citizens, as people who are you know uh, have the right uh, and have the right to to aid and assistance in, in times of crisis too. 
Well, uh, Julia, you've given us really a lot to think about. Uh, you've written a wonderful book, and um, I think uh, your uh, your discussion here should only whet the appetites of our listeners for more. I encourage everyone to read Professor Julia Irwin's book, Catastrophic Diplomacy, U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance in the American Century. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the terrific conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with both of you. And uh, thanks again, Zachary, for that wonderful poem to start us out. Yes, Zachary. Zachary, thank you so much. We're going to be thinking about your poem until our next episode, of course. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.